0: This episode of the Chef's Manifesto podcast is made possible by Knorr, the world's most chosen food brand. Knorr's Future 50 Foods inspires dietary diversity by identifying 50 of the foods we should eat more of for the health of ourselves and of the planet. By incorporating these and other diverse foods into our meals, they are enabling more diversity in the foods grown. Knorr will inspire and educate people all over the world to cook with these foods and will partner with suppliers and retailers to make these foods accessible and affordable.
1: We the chefs
2: chefs,
1: are working together to create a better food future. future.
0: Hi, I'm George. Andy. Tom from Nigeria. Switzerland.
3: Los Angeles. London. India. New Zealand.
0: Ingredients are medicine.
4: Ingredients are superpowers. Food is joy.
0: Food is
1: love. Food is is life. life. Hello and welcome to the Chef's Manifesto podcast. I'm your host, EcoChef Tom Hunt, a columnist and the author of new cookbook, Eating for Pleasure, People and Planet. Did you know around a quarter of all road freight by vehicle miles is food? The quantity of food miles on our roads has doubled since 1974. And 95% of the fruit and half of the vegetables in Britain are imported. So it's important to try and address the amount of air miles we're using to get food onto our tables. In this episode, we'll be looking at how we can use local and seasonal produce to reduce our impact on the planet, support communities and crop diversity. So please join the Chef's Manifesto, subscribe, rate and like us below. Your feedback is important to us, not only so that we can make sure we are tapping into the subjects you care about, but to help with our reach too. Today, I'll be talking to Alva Lim and Leonilda Jimenez about the Timor-Leste Food Lab. And I'll also be joined by Le Cordon Bleu chef India Hamilton to talk about how she promotes local and seasonal foods in a sustainable and accessible way. But first, I am joined by a friend and London-based chef, an author whose work focuses on local and seasonal food. After training at Moro, he then set up and ran Constam where he went to extraordinary lengths to source hyper-local ingredients of exceptional quality. And starred in bbc Two's The Urban Chef, which tracked his efforts to uncover suppliers in and around London. He is passionate about sourcing local food and has recently published his book, Food for All Seasons. I'm thrilled to have you on the podcast, Oliver Rowe. Welcome to the show.
0: Hello. Uh, thank you very much for having me on.
1: So you obviously have an unyielding passion for local seasonal food. Can you tell us a little bit about where that came from?
0: Uh, Yeah, it's interesting to bring up more. Actually, I'm going to go back further than more. So when I first started cooking, it was in Italy. And I went and worked for a summer in Tuscany at my mum's cousin's art school, which is a lovely resource to be able to go and work in. And um, it was a proper job and we were cooking for the students and working with amazing produce, and it was such an amazing place to, to connect the food that we were cooking with the landscape and the and the terroir and the and the and the recipes and the people and the community that it, it gave me a real understanding of what happens when food that's produced locally is eaten locally and and the impact of that on the, on the the menu the diet and so on and the, and the passion. So that's where I kind of got that initially but then i went to work at morrow and there the food is very hands-on it's very real they have a charcoal grill and they have a wood oven and they're they're super passionate about their food so it 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 was just a great place to be so it was a really good logical step um to go from from this wonderful landscape and this amazing experience uh, and then to go and work in this very very tough but but very passionate and and very real kitchen with real fire and and lots of amazing ingredients so it that's where my passion for cooking and food came from and that led to a a desire to respect the seasonality of the food because that's the only only real way that you can really connect with the produce as the, the year goes by engaging with the different the different ingredients that become available and the more local you are the more seasonal you have to be so they all follow on one from the other really so yeah that's kind of where that all came from for me
1: and so i've got your beautiful book food for all seasons that's really an extension of this idealism or passion for sustainability seasonality and local food what inspired you to write it and what are the key messages that people should take home from it or People, to kind of, How would you inspire people to pick it up and read a copy?
0: I opened a restaurant in 2006. Well, actually, I opened a cafe in 2003 where I started cooking for myself. And that was my my, my first personal kitchen that I had, a professional kitchen. And had that for a couple of years. And during that time, I started to become very inspired by some of the other chefs and some uh, environmentalists talking about food miles and the impact of the food chain on the environment. And that really chimed even more with where I was going with food. And I decided to open a restaurant and I wanted to make that a restaurant which which really focused on local food for all of these reasons. And so I became incredibly immersed in that. And it was amazing, you know, picking up the phone and talking to farmers and, and ordering food from farmers as opposed to just from veg suppliers or from butchers but actually the people that produce the ingredients themselves. And that was such an impetus for me as well. And creating those connections and becoming part of those people's lives and their work lives and and how, as a chef, those two things merge. That was incredible for me. But as I said, the more local you become, the more seasonal you become. And so I actually started out thinking I was going to write a book about local food, which I kind of did, but during the time that I was writing it, I I really realised that what I wanted to talk about was the seasonality of the food. And And
1: I suppose the two are synonymous, really, in the sense Mm -hmm. that you can't have one without the other, other than some local foods, which are grown industrially, of Mm -hmm. course, are kind of grown using external energy sources like greenhouse tomatoes and things like that, um, where, of course, there's a divide. I now hyphenate them and use them together, use the words together, local, seasonal, because for me that (laughs) kind of explains it in one sentence. But I mean... I know your work personally through collaborating with you over the years, and I know how strict in the in the best sense you are with with sourcing good quality produce. And you write about this in the book too. What would be I think really helpful for some of our chef listeners would be to hear about what those policies were, you you produced that program with BBC Two where you were sourcing hyper locally. But it'd be great to hear about those policies that you've used then, and particularly the the kind of ones that you've carried forward into your food now.
0: Yeah, it, it, it's not necessarily that easy. It's much easier now than it, it used to be. That's that's one of the things I think is is important to bear in mind. So 10, 10, 15 years ago, when I started doing it, there were there wasn't much infrastructure. So we connected with farmers and, and they, of course, were working all day in the field, you know, or out on the farm, and they couldn't spare the time to deliver the food. So actually, there was quite a lot of, of, of produce within the area that we were sourcing within where there was food being produced, but we couldn't access it. So we had to set up a little system with farmers who would deliver to us um, once or twice a week and they would collate, uh, collect food from farmers around them. So we'd have this little network. So we set up this little infrastructure. So that was that was incredibly hard work and took a lot of time, but incredibly rewarding once we did so. But a lot of that infrastructure is now there with various um, people who are able to deliver locally sought, locally produced food around London. And I think the local movement has gathered so much steam that farmers and and chefs and, and everyone have, have made a lot more connections now. And I think people, farmers understand the need to be able to deliver their food directly to the customer in a way that they were they didn't before. So I think it's easier, but it still takes a bit of time and a bit of consideration. And so I think what I would say to people is find the point that makes you passionate about it find a way into it which makes you really really want to do it and i think for me this is where seasonality comes into it is because the more you connect your own personal narrative the way that as the year goes by you find more excitement and more interest in the food that you eat and what becomes available and what comes into season then the the more excited and more passionate you're going to feel about it and the more you will go that extra mile in order to make sure it is local and more seasonal. But it also works the other way that when you take that bit of extra effort to source a a leek or a spring onion and you know the farmer and it's only there once a year, you become incredibly excited about it and you know what it means and it has much more value um, and you rate it higher. And so you talk about it differently on your menu and you talk about it differently to your your customers and you talk about it differently to your staff. It's got its own rewards.
1: Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more. To be honest, I mean, that I think when you were running Constam, I was at River Cottage, which was kind of back in 2004,
0: or 6, or... I was, Constam was 2006, 2010. So you yeah. were doing festivals kind of... as well, and uh, that's where we first met, I think, was at... Yeah, at, Green uh, Man. Green festival. Man, which was interesting, because I was just going to say, because that was, as a festival, all the food that we did there, we sourced from around the festival site as well. So we took, you know we did take it to an extreme yeah maybe to a point of fault occasionally <laughs>
1: no way i think it's admirable and <laughs> i hadn't thought about it till till this conversation about the fact that things have improved at least in in london and the uk there is a better connection now between chefs and farmers through the well, the the revolution that you were part of with Hugh fernley Whittingstall and your restaurant Constam, times have improved, and I think that's also the rise of the farmers market as well, isn't it? It's the way that people, even in cities yeah. and and through veg box schemes, are connecting or kind of directly with with their farmers, which is so important for shrinking the food chain and and kind of improving our sustainability. So what I'd love to know is why you think working working seasonally and fostering strong local food systems is so crucial to drive progress on achieving a sustainable food system?
0: That's a big question. Food systems are very complicated, and I, I like the term you used, shrinking shrinking the food chain. Um, I think that a direct correlation between food miles and food doesn't always work. It's very difficult to to simplify it down. Uh, to to such a a binary Um, but it's important and I think that when you start stacking the food miles with the advantage you get from seasonal sourcing then I think you start to see a true gain a a sustainability gain you you start to see lower emissions all across the board and so it, it, it increases exponentially we need to change our food systems we need to change the way we farm we need to change the way we eat we need to change the way we cook I've followed your lead recently in in turning maybe not a strict vegetarian but 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 dropping meat almost entirely from my diet. And and I think that's a step that we all need to to take to some extent. I don't think it's something that needs to be preached about, but I think it's something that we're gonna all see is a bit more necessary. And that means as chefs we need to come up with new ideas about how to cook and how to serve things and keep people excited and, and make them interested and make them uh, give them delicious food to eat, you know, and I think that it's been there's a bit of a revolution going on in that way. And everyone's starting to think of lots of new ways to cook food based and plant based. Um, uh, sorry, plant based diets. So I think that's interesting. I think we need policy change. We need governments to take the the, the impact that they can make on food um, and the environment more seriously because they can make large changes which affect lots of people in a way that consumers um it takes it takes us a lot a lo- longer and is more complicated to organize and yeah the agricultural machine needs to needs to be shifted and altered and and taken away from its direction heading into kind of oblivion and into something much more holistic where we replenish and we reuse and we reinvigorate the soil and we use less land because we don't need to use all the land that we're using and then we sequester a lot of the carbon, which has been released into the atmosphere recently. But I think it, it's, it goes to say that there's no doubt that there's going to be some problems lying ahead. And we also need to work out how to cope with them as well. So there's a lot of pressure on food chains, a lot of pressure on food security. There's a lot of pressure on um, consumers. And I think there's a lot of pressure on chefs in the next few years to sort of keep driving that change forward and find ways to do it. And I and it's been exciting for me to fly the flag foot local and seasonal because i think it's 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 an important part of that so we've
1: got time for one more question i thought it'd be good to ask you why you think it's important that chefs are part of this conversation about sustainable food systems because it's only more recently that they've kind of become or more engaged in this conversation do you have any thoughts about why that's important and if you can even in terms of the sustainable development goals and the kind of bigger picture why should chefs be
0: involved i think one very important thing is because these days chefs are superstars not all of them um but some of them and uh, they they're influencers and they have an effect and they have an, an effect on people's lives they can help to affect their behavior and i think one of the things i'm always trying to make people realize is also just in a very direct and and simple fashion. As a chef, you're making decisions for large groups of people. So if if you have a restaurant which feeds 80, 100, 200 people a night, 50 people, 20 people, whatever, you're still making decisions for a larger group of people than, say, uh, your average consumer is. Um, unless they have a really big family, which is
1: <laughs> thousands of people. <laughs> thousands
0: of people. No, you know, um, so, so yeah, we, we, we're making decisions. We, we're making decisions on behalf of lots of people. So I think that's, that's a good step and it's good. It's good to get people to do that. But I think also um, in this country in particular, I think that in say Italy or the South of France or Spain, the food that you find in restaurants is driven by what people would eat at home. And in this country, it's kind of a bit the other way around. So what, people eat at home is quite often driven by by what they'll eat in restaurants because that's where we take our inspiration from so as chefs i think it's 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 important that we inspire people and we tell people what the decisions we're, we're taking are and i think we have a really important role to play in those sustainable goals and how we can make that more sustainable future which we're all striving for and i think whilst i was saying there's lots of problems ahead i am often struck by the fact that there's so many people who are anxious about what's going to happen there's so many people applying themselves to this problem as a as a species we're really kind of we are finally listening and hearing it and stepping up and and trying to do something very and and it's across the board plastic as well i'm often struck by how much plastic gets used in the food chain and and that's something which we we need to look at really excited china banning single use plastic i think by 20 25 or something quite quick so that's you know these steps are being taken and we can do them in the food chain more directly and I think the more we can do them as, as chefs we have a bit of a greater position of responsibility so that's why I think chefs are important
1: so Ollie your work taps into each and every one of the eight Chef's Manifesto points it'd be really cool if you'd join us and sign up all you have to do is go to the website chefsmanifesto.com and put your name down will do are you with us absolutely Brilliant. And any listeners that want to join us too, please subscribe to the podcast and go to the website and sign up as well. Thank you so much for coming on the Chef's Manifesto podcast, Ollie.
0: Thank you very much, Tom, for
1: having me. With the next two guests, I caught up during the Eat Forum in Stockholm last summer. Alva Lim is the co-founder, co-director and founding head chef of the Timor-Leste Food Lab and its flagship Agora Food Studio. Chef Leonilda, or Nuki Jimenez, has been head chef at Agora Food Studio since 2019 and is a founding member of the organisation since its opening in 2016. She transforms the edible biodiversity of Timor-Leste into the sublime, specialising in working with the many varieties of rice, corn and rare root
2: vegetables. Um, My name is uh, Leonilda Noronio Jimenez and you can call me Nuki. And I'm from East Timor. Timor is uh, close to Australia and Indonesia. And now I'm working in a restaurant, Agora food Studio as a chef. The Agora food Studio is a place that promotes local food. It's a good opportunity for me to, to work there because I n- learned something new that I never learned before because that place is from focus on local food because now we are special on young generation. We almost forget traditional food. So now we focus to promote the local food.
1: Yeah, amazing. So you're kind of reviving yeah. those local and traditional recipes and ingredients
2: and yes. bringing them back try, to the young people. Yeah, try to make the uh, food. It's a beautiful dish because now on young generation they they still think like the traditional food our food is like for the poor people so they don't have confidence to eat their food same also me before i also now don't have confidence to eat the food i think that the food is for the poor people and when i'm still kids my father always Say to us, uh, don't eat the corn, don't eat cassava, sweet potato because they think like the food is will make you like hard to learn, hard to study. They want us to eat like food, like rice or bread, noodles. So when uh. I'm still kids, I always think like that's the good food, not like polenta, cassava. It's not good food for me. My mom also scared with my father, so she just follow what my father say. So when my father pass away, she try, she try us to back to the, uh, our traditional food, try us to eat the food that corn, cassava, traditional food, but she tried slowly, slowly, and every afternoon she cooked corn, cassava, try us to eat that food is good for your healthy so we changed a bit in my family because my brother, sister, we eat like food like I say before. So now they always get sick. Yeah, Shore legs, Shore legs. yeah stomach ache. When my little brother see get sick, so she get uh, experience from my cousin. So my cousin say to him, "You should try." Always don't eat like noodles every day. Don't eat like fast food. So you s- you need to tr- eat like cassava. That's your food. That is healthy food. So now he tried to eat that food. So now he's become good, healthy. become good. So it's changing in my family now, uh, and also because every day we also go to school. We don't have time. Sometimes we don't not don't like our food, but it's hard to get the food like we need to go to supermarket get the food and come back to fry the vegetable. you need to clean the vegetable, so it's hard for us so we don't have time to every day go to market so we just go focus on uh, go to the fast food on last year I bought one fridge so <laughs> the, first
4: fridge ever <laughs> the first fridge in the family yes yeah wow.
2: first fridge and that's helped us now so we everyone wi- uh, every week Go to the market and buy all the vegetable. We keep in a fridge. That help us. So now we can ex- eat vegetable every day.
1: Ah, so yeah. because they last longer. Yeah, mm, um, yeah. it's quite wow. hot
4: in, in Timor. So
1: amazing. and yes. that is such an inspiring story to yeah. to hear how yeah your family is kind of transformed from this idealism of, of noodles and, and yes. imp- generally imported products yes mm-hmm. which is a thought of for the rich but now that's that's changing is that changing culturally as well or is it more kind of niches like your your own family are there other families that uh, are yeah. ha- having similar yes. changes within their diets back towards more traditional food yeah
2: that's now is our family not mostly but some is changing in their family so sometimes I just tell to them so because uh, now I'm working in agro so I not know all about the food but I know what is the good food which one is the bad food so I tell to them so you need to eat that's food. Not every day eat yeah. noodles mm-hmm. or fast food. Yeah. yeah. So a big change in, in my family. Yeah.
1: Wow, it's so inspiring. Yeah. So
4: I just wanted to um, share with you that in Timor Leste, it's it's malnutrition is very high, particularly for kids under under five. There's stunting that's almost about 50%. But now what you're getting is this really really strange double burden of malnutrition, both in not enough food, but also not enough. Good food, so you have people in the city who are malnourished because they're eating instant noodles from, you know, from packets, and there's just no vitamins in there, no minerals, no nutrients at all. And the incidence of diabetes, heart, hypertension, heart attack is increasing significantly since the past, I guess, the past three, four years. Um, so it's weird, yeah. The, the The remote areas don't have enough uh, don't have enough food. The city areas have access to food, but they're still malnourished in this 1.2 million population, nation.
1: Yeah, it's a, yeah, it sounds serious and a global issue too.
4: Yeah, especially in Southeast Asia. It's it's remarkably <coughs> shocking, some of the uh, the health the health indicators. Mm. Mm.
1: Mm. Would you mind introducing yourself as well sure. and telling us what you do, please?
4: So my name is Alva Lim. I am the co-director, founder of Agora Food Studio. Uh, originally from the Philippines, uh, grew up in Australia and Sydney. My husband is Greek Australian. We moved to Timor in 2011. We started Agora th- about three years ago, 2016. We just saw, as Noki said, there was no conversation publicly about local food, what is Timor's cuisine. If you Google Timor's cuisine, go on Wikipedia, it's it's pretty much Portuguese dishes, which is not to say that it's not part of the for the food culture. But there are a lot of the the native and indigenous wild foods are just not are just not uh, mentioned because there is a lot of yeah a lot of fear. shyness. it could be also taboo involved. I'm not quite sure, but it's a fascinating um, place. And so we started it to try and just start the conversation and uh, help young Timorese who are passionate about, about food and cooking and coffee to just see what they have and promote it.
1: Amazing, so it sounds like for both of you a lot of what you're doing is valuing natural resources yeah. and kind of these traditional ingredients. So yeah, if you could tell us a little bit about the dashboard.
4: Yeah, so we have an impact dashboard at Food Studio and what it is is a platform that is linked to our online uh, point of sale and it takes certain data And that we use to share with customers when you eat here you are actually contributing to the local economy so statistics on that on how much we're contributing to to the local agricultural economy Wow the number of nutritious meals served both to guests who attend but also to the team because well-being uh, is very important for particularly in the hospitality industry which as you know there's so much uh, stress and mental illness and I think food is so important to nourishing you and your mental mental health. So the dashboard, what we're trying to do is to demonstrate how we are uh, trying to achieve the, the SDGs, uh, particularly zero waste, uh, uh, well-being, um, uh, boosting the local local economy. So statistics like also how much we avoid in terms of plastic waste, single-use straws we don't use. Uh, we also don't sell bo- um, bottled water. So you also have an avoidance. Um, statistic there. Basically, we we want to share it to the world and and, um, get a discussion going with other interested restaurants, organizations, and how we can continue the conversation and and share with people that, you know, the more and more we we do something like this, we, we make it normal that avoiding waste or... Achieving the SDGs is is something that we can do individually. So the dashboard, the point of the dashboard was to communicate that, and create the the movement to more positive uh, results. Because 2020 is next year. It is. Yeah, and if all of us just do just a little thing, you know, we can really contribute to significant amount of change.
1: Yeah, wow! I feel yeah. like I need that in my restaurant. Is this something it, that other people can use? Is it something you've created? Yeah, from scratch. Yes. Is it something that other is going to be open source for other restaurants to be able to access? Or?
4: I'm not actually not sure the technical aspects of it. We have a uh, a backdoor behind the scenes ninja. He doesn't like to to share his name, but we will. We are now uh, introducing what we're doing. We'd love to have a chat about you know how we can how we can do this. Because uh, we do want, we do want more and more restaurants to take on. I think the important thing is to decide what you would like to share to your guests and customers. What you're doing, I think that's the most important thing. So I guess that'll affect the metrics. Paul has been talking about what what are the things that we can collect as indicators, and I think that's going to be an interesting challenge because we have big organisations like IKEA who calculate probably the incredible amount of waste that they might have or food that they produce. To then, you know, smaller restaurants, smaller businesses like ours. So definitely I, I, I want this this spread or just, just the the idea of having something that shows th- your impact.
1: Everyone check out the links below because I think we'll yes. be able to provide a bit more information yeah. about that. So check it out. The dashboard Our, will be there. Yeah, the dashboard, dashboard will be there. I am inspired. I would love to have something like that in my restaurant. Do you have any facts from that dashboard or stats of things that you've saved or, like, contributed to the economy off the top of your head? Maybe um, it's a tough question.
4: I think since since January 2019, uh, January the 1st, we might have put back into the local local economy about $17,000. I hope that's correct. <laughs> <My> <laughs> yeah, so because we, we, we predominantly buy most of our, our ingredients from the local wet market. That statistic also includes coffee. So we buy from local coffee producers, coconut oil. We don't use palm oil. Um, so, again, that goes back to women's groups. So I think it's about $17,000. Wow. But please go online and check to see if I'm wrong and tell them if I am. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the statistic since uh, two thousand, since January. So it, for most restaurants, it's probably very small. But personally, I feel like I, I just feel so proud that we've been able to generate that for the local economy.
1: You should. It's so cool. Yeah.
4: It's
1: there's been a big shift towards reducing food waste in the world over the last kind of 10 years. Is waste an issue in Timor as well?
2: I think uh, that's maybe 50% yeah. like that in Timor. But now in our in restaurant, we try to reduce that food waste. So we cook food like carrots or banana, coconut. Like coconut, we make the coconut milk, but we don't throw the coconut. uh, I don't know how to say Uh, meat. Meat coconut leftover. We try to make in uh, like cook with the beef or some. We to make
4: uh, rend with candle nut candle nut
2: beef candle nut rendang. Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. candle nut rendang, and we also make like coconut brownie oil for the dessert also.
1: Wow, sounds delicious. What's coconut rendang?
2: That's uh, the beef we cook the, with the f- fresh coconut milk and candlenut, nut. Which yeah. we have ah, and you brought them here. Yes. Yes.
1: Brilliant! Yes. I see you have brought in A many, lot yeah. many ingredients. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, tell us about this nut.
4: This is uh, <laughs> this candle- hard shell here. Can you see yeah. that? Can you hear that? <laughs> <laughs> it's the cousin of the macadamia nut. Yeah, and it grows in quite in yeah quite uh, amazing populations in, in across the island in specific areas. Um, and the quality is considered really high, the Timorese Candlenut. You can't eat it raw, as some friends of ours have discovered, uh, because the high high oil content in there can irritate your stomach. That's so why it's called, it's called Candlenut, because actually Nuki has a great story about yes. about Candlenut. Okay,
1: yeah. tell us about it. They're just to, so everyone listening, they they look like chocolate truffles yes. <laughs> They uh, yeah. or like walnut shells yep. um, yeah with really hard shells dusted in cocoa or something and then these are the nuts are they the crack inside yeah okay and they yeah they're very similar to the macadamias but slightly yeah. larger tell us your story yes. please Snooki. so uh,
2: this is a candle nut is a one of life loot he life food in timor so i want to share my history when i'm still a kid we live in district It's far of, of the city in Timor, capital Lolotoy is very far. Toy, Some
4: yeah. areas, I think, you have take to go only by pony.
2: Yeah, so take uh, maybe yeah. six or seven hours to. No go motorbikes, to nothing. By motorbike or, yeah, by bus. By motorbike, seven hours. Take seven hours. So when I'm still a kid, that's candle nut, before we use as a candle nut na- candle
1: actually turn the nuts into candles. Yeah, because yes. the, the oil content is that high.
4: So I think even in Hawaii, they, they used to, if I found if, if I'm right or not, but they used to be able to light it up and tell time yeah. with, with the candle that they'd string it up and then light it and it would it would yeah, um, yeah help to track time. But yeah. in Timor, they actually make into really big candles. Yeah. Wikipedia has a brilliant photo from, from a, a place that's on the yeah. south, yeah. east of Timor.
2: Yeah, so every afternoon we go to the forest to... Get the candle, candle nut, and we pound together with the kapok, kapok, yeah. and we make into the candle. Because we don't have uh, electricity before, yeah. So we use the candle, candle nut to the candle, and also before we don't have enough money when we still uh, in two thousand three four. We don't have enough money, so every week on Friday we go to the Another district, but on foot. Well, we wake up at five o'clock and we start walk in my district to another district at six o'clock and we arrive at uh, twelve or one o'clock. Yeah, take seven hours. Yeah, so we go there. We use the candle nut to like do the barter with the people in uh, another district. Mm. They would barter for. Was it um, palm, palm wine, wine. Palm, palm wine, and, yes. and, um, and some salt, tobacco? Oh, tobacco. <laughs> I don't know what we call in English. Yeah, yes, yeah, <laughs> tobacco. <got> it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, that's yeah. yeah. Also so for the sago.
1: So is the electricity now uh, we uh, g-
2: intermittent. Yeah. intermittent? Yeah,
1: intermittent, But it's yeah. still like a pony ride. Yeah,
2: sometimes mm. yes. we get this like she the, come. the
1: traveler in me wants <laughs> to. You
2: like have to. I've
1: yeah, I'm like. It I'm is one of the
2: last,
4: one of the few untouched. Uh, tourist destinations—it's really not touristy
1: at all. Well, I think we're we're about over, but there's so many good products in front of me. I'd love you to just tell us about one more of them.
4: So there is honey. I, I'll quickly talk about honey, Timur's honey. It was one of the reasons That's why. It. Yeah, it's please try it. It's uh, it got works. this beautiful citrusy, uh,
1: citrus a- orange
4: blossom flavour.
1: And a beautiful it's caramel, wild. caramel colour.
4: Yeah, it's wild honey, and there are not really any bees that are that are actually the beehives are harvested and cultivated. It's just all wild, so people climb up the trees for it. And that was a regional, re- original reason why people came to Timor, was for the beeswax, the honey, and sandalwood. Then after the sandalwood trees were cut down, coffee trees were planted. So, I want to talk about coffee because Timor's coffee is not so well known, but it is really amazing, um, particularly. At this moment, there's a movement to improve the quality of Timorese coffee. We've got coffee and coffee cherry skins. So most people know the coffee bean. They don't know about the coffee cherry. And it's wasted. It's thrown out and it's high in acidity. So it does actually affect the soils. So we're trying to get people to to please use more of the coffee cherry because it's high in antioxidants and also it's probably higher in caffeine. The coffee cherry is... Oh, where is it? Mm It's in this packet. <laughs> okay, can we open it?
1: Go for it. Okay, so what do you do with it?
4: You can make tea out of it. I can make it into powder. Put it in cooking. It's it's got a beautiful fruity because it is a fruit. It's the the skin. Mm.
1: It looks a bit like uh, mace, or yeah, it's, you can see how it's like yeah. the skin of the seed. Yeah,
4: and so talking about food waste, you know, that's one of the big things worldwide. You know, coffee is is is, an ad- is a drug, and uh, and it's wet. it's thrown out.
1: It actually smells a bit like hibiscus. Yeah, which yeah. makes a beautiful tea. Yes, um, and in so Yemen, tell us how you'd make that tea because I'm I'm tempted to try it.
4: We would just add water and yes. and do sort of like a drip the drip coffee style with this one, but we are experimenting and putting it into different like fruits and smoothies, cakes at the moment. Um, but this is made by a f- young friend of ours, uh, Emiliano, who's just uh, he's just started his coffee entrepreneurship. So we just wanted to promote. So and show his product <laughs> to the world because he's doing such a great great job. What else? There's Balimbi chilli. Uh, minus is a really important, important, important part of Timoree's, uh food culture. Um, it's Balimbi is a... Belimbing is a... It's a sour, citrusy. juicy, citrusy fruit. And so it's the season right now, which is why we brought it over. We just... Our team pickled that um, last, last week. week. And the reason why I, we've brought this to, to Sweden is because... Um, a lot of people may already know Indonesian sambals, but in Timor, a lot of the their version of sambal is very fresh, very uh, citrusy, and it just tastes beautiful with the corn that Nuki talked about, the roots, the tubers, the beans. There's just this beautiful pairing, and it's not it's not heavy, you know. Mm, it smells it's, really
1: fresh, like green yeah. capsicums and yeah. kind of slight fermentation. Yeah. yeah,
4: we have quite a few bottles, so we will give you one later. Oh, please.
1: I'm actually really excited to take a few of these ingredients and kind of try them out myself. Thank you so much for coming today. Thank you. Um, you. What an inspiring conversation. I can't wait to visit. Thank you. Amazing. (laughs) Thank Thank you so much. My next guest is a chef who looks to improve the food system from production to well-being and waste. After obtaining the Grand Diploma from Le Cordon Bleu, she worked in a variety of London restaurants, including the Wapping Project and the Windsor Castle, before starting her own projects in 2015. Joining me on the line from Jersey to talk about the Chef's Manifesto and how she is achieving the Sustainable Development Goals is India Hamilton. Hello.
3: Hi, Tom.
1: How are you today?
3: Um, Yeah, I'm really good, thanks.
1: Thank Uh, you so much for talking to us today. My pleasure. Firstly, I'd love to know, I understand that you've just set up a food co-op. Do you mind telling us a little bit about that?
3: Um, Yeah, so I've set up a co-op, co-founded a co-op called Scoop, the Sustainable Cooperative. And we've got 215 members. We work with about five farmers, about 10 different producers locally. They are themselves not co-op. It's focused around biodiversity and we are currently building a production kitchen and a reuse centre so people can drop off their waste packaging and so we can take the waste-free kind of concept of the shop and, the, and all the ingredients online without increasing packaging on the island.
1: So is all the food that you're selling through the cooperative local seasonal food itself?
3: Um, well, we we thought one of the issues was convenience of local seasonal food. So we asked the consumers what that meant and that means the the ability to only go to one shop. So we actually sell four hundred and fifty different products in our shop. It's all unpackaged. It addresses the household. So it looks at lifestyle, what the other style of products people want that, that fit. We've just started importing incredible dried fruit directly from Uganda from a small farm, from a small cooperative there doing the same thing. We're about to build a link out, out of Nepal for so very particular things. There's dried fruit coming from Uganda, the spices coming from Nepal. So we're, we're sort of building a network and making it more convenient for the customer, looking at how you make this local, local or agroecological supply chain convenient within the time and lifestyle of, of a conscious consumer, I guess.
1: And I know from talking to you before that that you think that just purely local food isn't always the answer and that it's way more complex than that do you mind elaborating on that or those thoughts for our listeners
3: so I started understanding local food I definitely linked well-being to soil health that once I kind of understood that it was obvious that finding systems where you can understand the connection between your well being and soil and diversity. And it is much easier to understand it from a bioregional perspective and a local perspective. But there is a there is a the majority of our food goes goes through an international globalized commodity system. And a lot of the developing world will provide for that. And this is something that I felt uncomfortable with my lack of knowledge in. Um, so I went, so I've gone to try and unpick it and there are so many complexities to it but I guess it's it's about linking up to the farming that you want to see and building supply chains that fit the farming that you want to support and not just looking at changing one place to another or um, one ingredient for, for another. It is about the system that it's with, that it's Bought bought within and it's about the market that it's sold within that you can then support the farmers that you like to see that makes sense as opposed to just a global and a local concept
1: in in a way you're suggesting that it's more about direct trade and well you're obviously saying that it's about kind of the system and how that food was um not only produced but found its way to you
3: yeah and sort of the the We've got a, a huge amount of people buy processed food in, um, in the UK. Processed food essentially just means extended life. You're not moving fresh food around. as um, It sort of transitions into something else. I was, I'm interested in how you adapt that processing to include and support the biodiversity you want to see on the farmland. So how can you adapt that and utilise it the best where you can support and improve access from the better farming practices and the and the consumer affordably.
1: And so I understand you're writing a thesis on the chef's manifesto. Is that right?
3: Oh yeah, yeah. We've just started to open the discussion, so that's happening in the next couple of weeks. Uh, there's a few different there's a few different directions that I am looking to take. It's a bit too soon to say where that's going to go yet. But what I have found fascinating about the chef's manifesto is how I'm really, as I say, I'm really into systems. And one of the things is instead of looking at how to do something, is how is what's going to stop something from happening? What's going to what's going to stop a line of success? It's um, from all the work that I've ever done, the road to success is always littered with banana skins. I think is the easiest way to explain it. So how do you make that road super smooth? And I think the chef manifesto has really made something very clear and concise from something relatively complex in terms of the STTs that all inter, interact with each other. And that clarity, that sort of that chef's knowledge, that chef's almost simplicity and skill has really, I think, could really influence how it's understood in a broader context
1: i think that's pretty much answered my last question which was really just going to be why do you think chefs are important an important part of this conversation i don't know if you've got anything else you'd like to add
3: i think i, I think it's phenomenal there obviously there's a lot of different chefs doing a lot of different things and for a very long time it's been a it's been about making the best plate of food but i actually think a majority of chefs Participate in the industry because they love to serve, and there is an emotional connection between other people eating more so than um, the meeting themselves really I certainly sit in this in this kind of sense of why I 'm a chef, a very deep emotional attachment to how others feed themselves, and with that comes a very broad understanding of the the how to use all the elements of the supply chain from um purchasing food all the way through we've all been caterers lugging back awful uneaten food and we know how challenging that is it's a unique sort of broad spectrum understanding and i think if they're not participating in these global food systems challenges it will only ever be a hard, it will never be as good as it could be in terms of solution
1: based i don't think absolutely india thank you so much for coming on the show today it was a real pleasure And that's all for this episode of the Chef's Manifesto podcast. Please subscribe to join me next time when I'll be looking at why vegetables and plant-based ingredients should be the center of our dishes and diet. If you like the show, please rate, comment and share our podcast. We need your help as chefs and food lovers to achieve the Sustainable Development Goals by the year 2030. Until then, bye for now.
3: There are eight thematic areas.
2: Ingredients grown with respect to the earth.
0: Fairly to oceans. Protection of biodiversity. And improved animal welfare.
3: Investment in livelihoods. Value natural
0: resources.
3: And reduce waste.
0: Waste is recyclable. Waste is unnecessary.
3: Waste is criminal.
1: Celebration of local and seasonal food.
2: A focus on plant-based ingredients.
0: Education on food safety. And healthy diets.
3: Nutritious food that is accessible. accessible.
0: And affordable to all. Chefs. Politicians.
3: Suppliers.
2: Farmers.
1: Educators. Chefs together can change the world. Get involved. Get involved. Get
2: involved.